What's up, everyone? I'm Andrew Steinwald, and this is Zima Red. On this show, we speak with the users, founders, and creatives that are diving into the world of unique digital assets, also called non-fungible tokens. My guest today is Brian Flynn. Formerly at Dapper Labs, Brian is now focusing his attention on building his own product for the crypto ecosystem. Brian has an interesting background that involves professional esports, a startup that incentivizes real-world activity with reward points, and a newsletter called Nifty News. We hit a ton of topics during our conversation, like Brian's journey through crypto and how he got his job at Dapper Labs, the issues with the NFT ecosystem, using crypto to evolve the concept of the marketplace, and of course, we dove deep into how we will achieve a true metaverse. I love Brian's point of view because he has such a diverse set of experiences that involve theory through his writings and actual boots on the ground experience building at Dapper Labs. This skill set makes Brian's opinion very valuable for our ecosystem, and I can't wait to see what he builds next. Please enjoy my conversation with Brian. Brian, thank you so much for joining me today. Super excited to chat with you. And to get us started, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background, how you got started in crypto, and then how you got involved with non-fungible tokens. Sure. Thanks for having me, Andrew. So yeah, my background has been always a kind of in a gaming space. Back in high school, did, did some esports, played uh, Counter-Strike professionally. Uh, and some MMOs as well, like World of Warcraft and kind of all the others, always had some interest in virtual economies. In college, I worked on a startup called Grabbit, which is kind of like a peer-to-peer delivery platform between friends, it incentivizes friends to pick up goods for other friends um, and rewards them with loyalty points. It kind of led me down the rabbit hole of cryptocurrencies and using Ethereum to incentivize others to do things. And eventually just got kind of more involved with the ecosystem. And so that intersection between games and incentives kind of led me to exploring it a little more deeply. And then around in 2018, I kind of got more involved with NFTs once CryptoKitties launched. Um, I kind of saw it as one of the first practical applications of crypto. Uh, in general, and then started a newsletter in the space that kind of continued today called Nifty News. And yeah, that's kind of where I am today. That's awesome. So you said that you were involved in esports, and was that with CSGO? Uh, no, that was CS 1.6. So, okay, so it's a first person shooter type of game? Yeah, so I kind of played in this, uh, in the break between 1.6 and CSGO. Like the community was like pretty jet at the time. Uh, but that was kind of just like when, uh, when I got good at the game. So like for a period of like two to three years, like the FPS scene was like relatively dead, waiting for the next big hit. There was a bunch of like ex-Quake players who, who were trying to look for their new, new game. And so people were between games like Team Fortress 2 and uh, some of these other really small games. But it wasn't until about uh, 2017, 2016, Somewhere around there, that that Overwatch actually came onto the scene as kind of the next big FPS, and so it was interesting to see like how the FPS scene has kind of evolved uh, since then. Obviously, now the uh, FPS scene kind of blew up with battle royale games like Fortnite, and now even Valorant, which I've been watching almost religiously every day since closed beta launch in the past three days. But it's definitely interesting to see how the esports scene has kind of evolved since then. Yeah, it's crazy that I feel like first-person shooters used to be. Not necessarily a niche, but like definitely in esports, is kind of the ecosystem was just so tiny. And now you look at it, it's just absolutely massive. And there's you know streamers making you know millions of dollars a year playing these games and, and whatnot. And you also mentioned that you were into World of Warcraft. Those games are so different from each other. What do you find appealing about the first person shooter CS 1.6? And then what do you find appealing about World of Warcraft? Yeah, I mean, I was just very competitive gamer in general. World of Warcraft was all about kind of just getting the new gear and, and battling others in arena PvP. 
and just trying to be the best. <laughs> so it's like, even though they were kind of two different games, so it's just always like competitive gamer, you know, did the whole guild thing, guild leader sort of thing, led raids and all that. All right, so you learned about CryptoKitties in early 2018, started your newsletter, and you started writing about NFTs, or was it more broadly about crypto or focused purely on NFTs? Yeah, so, I mean, I was just kind of like looking for like an entryway into the space almost. I knew I, I wanted to get involved with the space and I was kind of like looking for like a small little niche. Whenever you're trying to break into like a new industry or a new space, the best way to do that is kind of just to find a small niche and then kind of become like, you know, expert to some degree. So I was like, okay, well, NFTs are a thing. Like, let me just start kind of writing about NFTs. I had, I had a very small interest. I wasn't into the whole like uh, NFT art side of things, but I was just interested, you know, in general application of, of crypto. So NFTs kind of were the first uh, step in that direction. So what are your views on cryptocurrencies today? Just like Bitcoin, Ethereum, and, and the other altcoins? My views on this, you know, change every every minute, every second. <laughs> I kind of like, I think other people feel the same way. Um, but in about 2018, my views were probably that Ethereum wasn't going to be the, the leading blockchain. Um, you know, we saw the issues with CryptoKDs in 2017 crashing the Ethereum network. Um, and that led to a whole host of problems. But what we did see in 2018 was kind of like what the benefits of Ethereum are, and that was kind of a composability as a whole. And when when I was at Dapper Labs, like the, what fascinated me the most was, was the flow blockchain because it had this high degree of composability and, and high throughput. What happened was I, I kind of thought to myself, so what is required for actual metering to adoption? Is it this, you know, uh, blockchain that kind of has this all-purpose blockchain that has, you know, all these people building on it, or is this really high scalable blockchain that can kind of support these, these applications that can bring uh, to, to mainstream users. Um, and the way I've kind of thought about this is that uh, Ethereum is kind of like uh, New York City. There is like high traffic and everything's very expensive, but that's kind of where everyone is. And then other blockchains are kind of like private islands. Where they'll just where the government will pay you large amounts of money to, to go and, and build something there but there are no there are no users right like you have to actually pay for users uh to come over in, in some high high capacity so the thing about building any application for the mainstream is like you're like okay do i build where the users are currently where there's high degree of traffic or do i build uh where, where they're kind of in this new island and i think the answer and i, I flip-flop on this all the time but I think the answer lies in first you need to build into the city because you need to convince that that you've actually built something valuable, but then find ways to gradually move uh, to a new island. And that's kind of like my, my thesis on it right now. And do you think that there's going to be, you know, hundreds of blockchains in the future and, you know, one blockchain will be, hey, this is the gaming blockchain. This is the DeFi blockchain. This is the whatever blockchain. Or will there only be five, ten blockchains, you know, that, that exist and that everybody uses those? Oh, there, I mean, there'll totally be uh, hundreds of blockchains. I mean, in the same way that there are many different religions, many different countries, many different islands, I think that you know, there will probably be a blockchain for almost anything, right? Like, because code is open source, obviously, you can just work and, and create a new blockchain. It, it just depends on, like, what capacity does are the blockchains, like, have some element of, like, activity going on them, on them today. So if we're talking about like blockchain activity, I mean, it's relative to probably, you know, five to five to 10 that actually have some meaningful value behind them. Um, but then there's just this whole long tail of blockchains, just kind of like how there's a whole long tail of digital assets on Ethereum. 
All right, so you kind of touched upon this earlier, but what attracted you to NFTs and why do you not focus on traditional crypto, so to speak? And you kind of mentioned that you want to focus on some small niche and grow your audience and kind of become the expert within that niche. But yeah, why do you not focus on the big space, which is crypto as a whole versus focusing on the small ecosystem that was NFTs at the time starting your newsletter? Yeah, sure. At first, when I was kind of like exploring the space a little bit, there were a couple of things going on. One of them was like, uh, TCR token curated registries. One of them was kind of DAOs, but it, DAOs were kind of like very primitive back then. And the and NFTs were, were kind of the third one at the time. And since CryptoKitties was the only option, like the only actual tangible application when I was building or, or creating my newsletter, uh, I was like, okay, well, I, I, I think I have to write about this space because I need to write about like what people are actually using today and not speculating what people are, are building in some cases, right? Like it, it was, it wasn't for another like, five or six months until we saw a new category of a different dApps, right? Like Augur came out in uh, September of 2018. And that's when we started to see like all these different things built on top of Augur. Like we saw Veil and Guesser and some of these other prediction market interfaces. We didn't see this activity going on until, you know, much later than some of this NFT stuff going on. So I think it just made sense to write about where the actual users were at the time, as opposed to just speculating on, on where users will be in the future. All right. So your experience at Dapper, you should definitely have some uh, good insight into this question. What are the main barriers to adoption for the NFT ecosystem? Yeah, I mean, I, I think this question can be rephrased a little differently about like, what are the main uh, barriers of entry to crypto in general? I don't think that NFTs and digital assets are, are too different from each other. Like each, each, uh, like if you're comparing a ERC-20 contract and ERC-721 contract, uh, both of them kind of have some degree of, they have kind of the same structure of like, you're, you're able to mint new tokens or you're able to burn some tokens. Uh, it's it's kind of easy to sell tokens, have some exchange functionality. So it, like if you're trying to you're trying to, to create a new token, the way I think about it is that the NFT itself is kind of the object that's more consumer facing. And then the, the token itself represents the governance behind uh, that, that kind of that NFT contract. And so what happens right now in, in the Ethereum uh, NFT ecosystem is that everyone kind of creates a new NFT contract and says that there's some predefined uh, scarcity involved with it. But, but what's really happening is that because everyone's saying that these things are scarce and they're creating new ones, that there's actually no scarcity at all. Uh, and same thing goes for fungible tokens, right? You know, there's this huge long tail of assets and there's really like this, there's very little behind it. But when you have some, you know, actual network that governs like uh, how many of these of NFTs to be produced and how they're produced and you have some, uh, you know, whole group of applications that, you know, trust that these that these NFTs are going to stay scarce like the way they are, that they are going to be scarce, uh, then there might be, might be some value to it. And then at that point, then you can have and you can start selling the mainstream on like hey there's actual digital scarcity here because digital scarcity and digital ownership as a value proposition doesn't work for mainstream like it's been, it's been tried so many times they, they just don't care they don't care as much as you try as much as you try to say so i think we need to find out like what the actual benefits of of blockchain are in the in the first place and i have like a lot of opinions on that as well but just saying that like NFTs of digital ownership are appealing to mainstream is, is not true, in my opinion. I would say that a lot of value that derives from Bitcoin is the fact that it's hard capped to 21 million and there cannot be more made. So 
I feel like you can say that, hey, I'm going to issue these 100 NFTs, let's say, you know, 100 CryptoKitties, these ultra rare CryptoKitties, and I'm never going to make any more of them. And of course, they won't have inherent value. But I think that there's people that will collect them. And they'll be confident in the fact that if it's hard capped to 100, they'll be confident in the fact that, okay, there's only going to be 100 of these. Therefore, they're more valuable than other NFTs that are essentially unlimited. Yeah, I mean, I think in general, Bitcoin is the only you know digital currency that has this hard cap that can never be changed. But anything else, you know, any other smart contract uh, protocol kind of doesn't have that in place because you could have you know some governance that implements a different uh, inflation scheme at kind of any time. And same same goes for NFTs, right? Like theoretically, you can say that there are only that these you know a hundred NFTs that forever exist. And like you know, same goes for like land sales. Like like uh, if you ever say that you know there's hundred plots that ever exist. What stops a company from, you know, minting a hundred more plots of land to do like a second round of pre-sale, right? Because what, what, what a lot of these, what these blockchain game companies do, especially for NFTs, is that they'll, they'll have these pre-sales of, of NFTs to fund the development of the application itself, right? So they have an incentive to kind of have this, you know, mass amount of, of NFTs that have some value. And they use a digital scarcity to drive this FOMO effect, right? To say, hey, this has this has value because they're scarce, right? And they kind of use the Bitcoin analogy. They they use that kind of as the value degrader. So like go back. But then you know, a couple months later, you know, they wrote in money. Uh, they're, they're, they're trying to find, they're scrambling with like, hey, why not we do another pre-sale? And that way we, we can ha- we can have more money. So they they use that mint function on the NFT to create to create more of them, and that kind of creates this long tail of assets in some regards, right? I think that's kind of the fundamental problem with it. You bring up a lot of really good points there, but I do think that, so, okay, so let's use CryptoVoxels as an example. In Origin City, there's only 3,026 pieces of land available for people to buy, sell, whatever. Outside of Origin City, there's going to be more cities. And, you know, as you mentioned, they're going to print more. But within Origin City, at least, it's hard capped to that amount and there can never be more. I guess in that sense, it's kind of, you know, the origin city parcels are limited and there will be no more created. So I guess in some sense, it's kind of like Bitcoin. I mean, obviously, I guess you could say that the other cities are kind of like forks of Bitcoin or maybe, I don't know, added supply, but at least, you know, origin city, no more. Yeah, it's totally true. But what stops someone from, from creating like another crypto box? I was like, right, right. So like right now there are probably like three or four different metaverse NFT projects, right? That have some like this, this, this concept of land, right? So like you're, you're buying land across these different protocols. And then at that point, you're like, okay, well, which of these, which land from these four different games have an actual value behind them? So some of them, have, you know, as you said, have hard coded scarcity, right? The same way that the CryptoKitty genome uh, ha- has hard coded, you know, uh, breeding into into creating new NFTs in CryptoKitties, like like it's almost possible to create like any more Gen Z or CryptoKitties, right? But you can always introduce like like more fancies to, 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 to some degree, right? But the same goes for same goes for CryptoVox, right? You can't create any more uh, you know voxels inside of, Gen- of Genesis City, but you can always create more of you know these, these secondary parcels kind of around it, right? So you're you're lessening the value of the inner city crypto voxels themselves by having new minted NFTs kind of on the outside that don't have this these this hard coded scarcity around it. The analogy that I'm kind of thinking of is almost like forks because Bitcoin there's only 21 million, but then you know there's forks of Bitcoin like we could make Andrew and Brian Bitcoin right now we could just fork it, but obviously the thing that gives it value is like the network effect. So because people are using and owning Bitcoin and trading it. That's what gives it value. And because people are, you know, building in the CryptoVoxels origin city and 
you know, doing stuff within it, that's what gives it value. You're right that if someone makes like a, another island or another area outside of the main city, then that's kind of like kind of like inflation in some sense. It kind of devalues what you already have in that main city. Yeah, totally. All right. So what goes mainstream first, crypto or NFTs? And how do they go mainstream? Is it going to be some sort of like big event or is it just like a slow grind? Uh, I've uh, I thought about this a lot. It, re- it really depends on... It really depends on your definition of, of mainstream, right? So in general, DApps, in DApps, the average revenue per user is 10x, 10x or 20x of normal applications, right? People are paying a premium through decentralization uh, in, in some capacity, right? Because they want that liquidity in their assets. So like you can have a DApp that has, you know, 10 to 20x less users with the same amount of revenue as like something like uh, Facebook or Snapchat or kind of any popular uh, applications today. So it, it depends, like if you're thinking, is it mainstream, like the same amount of users or is it the same amount of revenue, right? I would say it's users. Yeah, so if it's if it's users, then, then you're just looking for some uh, existing centralized application today that introduces some element of, of crypto, right? It's hard to see a scenario where there's a new decentralized application that's created as a, as a DAP first that reaches the same critical mass of users that normal applications have today. Um, so, you know, like Reddit today, like uh, some people are talking about how they're introducing uh, cryptocurrency for subreddits, right? Just to send points from one wallet to another, right? Like that that's a that's an easy way to get, uh, you know, millions of people using crypto or, or NFTs like right away, right? Having that built-in wallet functionality, right? And, you know, like there are a lot of, a lot of teams in, in Asia working, working on something similar with some of these super apps, right? Like a line for, yeah, line blockchain uh, is kind of working with it, right? With, I think it's in South Korea that, that's working on the blockchain to introduce some element of uh, crypto to their uh, to their users on their app as well, right? So it, it's more likely that you have some central, centralized application introducing crypto as opposed to uh, a DAP building, uh, building to that many amounts of users. You don't see it probable that there's going to be multiple viral hits like you know CryptoKitties went viral that got a ton of users onboarded and maybe the next CryptoKitties is going to be bringing 10x more users than that and then you know there'll be three more of those events and then you left with you know 100 million users but you think it's more probable that some large institution slowly utilizes crypto and blockchain in some sense and introduces that to people totally right i mean yeah totally right so i mean CryptoKitties you know had had you know max you know t- tens of thousands of users right not to any degree that's that's the other applications have today so like well well everyone kind of knew about CryptoKitties, like the actual people like using the application were actually were actually extremely low facebook and libra actually probably posed like probably one of the the best the best opportunity to introduce a lot of people to crypto right now and then it's more more likely that one of these major uh, vr platforms uh, introduce some element of like having a wallet uh, that kind of lives on top of your your operating system that can transfer your NFTs like between the, these like user generated worlds, right? Like an Oculus or an Epic Game Store, and we can go into that a bit, bit if you want. Uh, but it's more likely that like something like that happens first than, than you know having a, a breakout hit from a decentralized application. So, which company in the world is closest to building something that will introduce? crypto slash NFTs to the masses? Yeah, I mean, I think the obvious one is Facebook right now, right? <laughs> With Libra, uh, you know, they, they've obviously have the problem of, of trust and getting users and they don't want to make all these decisions themselves. Um, but if they have this, you know, currency 
uh, they could potentially be had by a bunch of their node operators like on the system that can make decisions. But do you think Libra is still going to happen? I feel like they're kind of dead on arrival. Yeah, I mean, like, I think it's just a matter of time, right? It's just like, I think that if, if they don't do it, someone will do it. Uh, and if someone else will do it, and then they'll just follow after in some regards, right? So like the Libra will exist in some form. It might not be Libra itself, but you know, some major company will, will, will make Libra exist eventually. All right, so what are your thoughts on DAOs or decentralized autonomous organizations? I think high level that, that they're super interesting. Being able to, to coordinate between multiple people is a really hard problem. The same way that when you have a group project, like in school, and you're, you're trying to get people to kind of like get get something done. It, it's really hard kind of like assigning ownership to, to people, right? It's hard saying like, hey, hey, you go do this, you go do this. Let's kind of gather around in a couple of days and like, you know, get get this through. Um, so I think DAOs, uh, you know, it's really hard to, to coordinate people in, in general, right? It's really hard to have a sense of degree of ownership, especially when you're anonymous, right? Like, like when you're like, when you're anonymous, you, you can't like hold someone accountable. So I'm just like, I, I wish, you know, 0x35432544 gets this project done today. It's like, I get unblocked to my project, <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, it, it's kind of silly, right? But when you have these, when you have proper incentives in place um, for people to contribute open source code, I think it gets really interesting. I think we, we just haven't seen the proper uh, applications of it yet, right? A lot of the, the DAOs that, that kind of exist today um, are trying to behave like formal Web2 companies. And I think that's almost the the wrong way to go about it. But it, it should be more about like having a, a, a correct incentive uh, in place first for, for people to contribute um, the same way that people are contributing to open source repos on GitHub today. So it's just it's just a matter of implementation rather than them existing at some point. You kind of said that the DAOs of today look kind of similar to Web 2.0 companies. And I think that I feel like DAOs have not really... There's been a lot of talk about them. There's a lot of people making DAOs and whatnot, but actually seeing like really cool, well-functioning DAOs is kind of rare. What do they need to do in order to, I don't know, kind of reach their full potential, so to speak? Yeah, it's kind of similar of obviously like what do NFTs or like what do what do cryptocurrencies need to reach their full potential, right? It, it's just finding the right use case. And I don't think that uh, they've, they've found it so far. And it's, it's, we don't know what the full potential of these things are. Like, we don't know if like, you know, is it to be a successful company? Is it, is it to generate a lot of revenue, right? Because it's just completely new primitive. Like we don't know what a metric of success for these things are. So it's hard to tell like what potential actually means for these things. So I th- and so when you're trying to do like a work back of like, okay, well, what does it mean to have a successful DAO for something like Meta Cartel, right? Is it a number of, grants funded? Is it the number of successful projects that come out of it? Um, like like a normal accelerator, normal incubator? It, it's, it's just hard to tell like what the end goal actually is for these things. All right. So you have your own social token, I believe. What is your token ticker symbol? <laughs> it's Jam. Jam. Okay. I love that. All right. Yeah. So tell me about social tokens. Like what are they and how do they work? Social tokens are, at least very similar to, to NFTs. They have this very playful element to them, even though that there's, you know, a dollar sign attached to it at any point, right? Like social tokens that you can buy in, in a liquidity pool from Uniswap and, you you know, there's some financial value to that. But it's also like play money, right? So if, if I like send you like a message message on Telegram, like, like, it's kind of as like a playful thing. Like I can do that with, with social money as well, right? And because there's, because like theoretically anyone can have social money, um, it, it becomes more of a, of a playful gift, 
like like cheersing someone on Twitch, right? Or, or, or like giving someone bits, right? As opposed to actually giving someone some some financial value, right? And, and I think it, it will it will take a while for for social money to become a thing, but I totally see it as a way to you know, kind of be a, a very playful tool, um, just to to kind of give some some people something to 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 do with crypto. Yeah, I think that the social token ecosystem or area is is super super early, but I think it's the possibilities are like essentially endless. And I think that what you're doing with your Jam token is super cool because I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, you can use Jam to pay for your newsletter. Is that correct? No, you you can't right now, actually. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean I've, I've been trying to find like, some use cases for it. In general, I kind of just use it as more of a, a means of experiment and to incentivize people to do things. So for example, I'll say, hey, if you create a ethmoji and prove it to me, you know, I'll, I'll give you some of my token for doing things, right? And then I'll, I'll have some raffles to give away some things like a same fame sweatshirt or something for some of my uh, token holders. That's really cool. So I can also, I can see like a future where there's, I don't know, like movie stars or like, you know, Instagram celebrities that are creating their own social tokens and using those as kind of like, you mentioned like Twitch, people donating to Twitch streamers. And also what comes to mind is like Patreon for when uh, YouTubers want money. Maybe they're not making enough income from ads, so they have their own Patreon so they can earn money from that. Um, I can see like social tokens being some sort of an evolution from that. And because they're fully programmatic tokens on Ethereum, I feel like the what you could end up doing with them is just insane. The the possibilities are actually endless. So that's really cool. Yeah, totally. I really like what uh, Connie Digital is doing with some of her tokens and, and such crypto voxels and displaying you know, crypto art for people who have access to her token. And I, I think that there's, there's a lot of potential for, for uh, that sort of thing, um, just a matter of just seeing those creative use cases, like, as I mentioned before. So wait, what is Connie doing? Whoever has a certain amount of a token get uh, access to a digital art gallery inside of CryptoVoxels, I believe. Oh, that's really cool. So Connie, the artist, he has a social token. And when you get enough of those tokens, you can view his art in a certain parcel within CryptoVoxels or? Yeah, yep, that's good. I, I haven't actually experienced it myself. I, I've, I've just, I've heard the role guys talk about it. So it might be a little bit different than that, but that, that's kind of where the digital art uh, scene has been going recently. They've kind of been blending the digital art and the um, social token kind of very creatively. All right. So you mentioned Saint Fame. And for those who don't know, Saint Fame is the first internet owned clothing store. What would you call that, Saint Fame? I would call it decentralized culture. Decentralized culture. That's awesome. All right. So Saint Fame is basically this, it's a place where you can buy clothing from right now. That's what it is in its early stages. It's a product of Zora and Zora is a marketplace for basically releasing limited edition goods. So St. Fame is the first brand to be on Zora. What are your thoughts about Zora and what are your thoughts about what St. Fame, the first uh, brand on Zora? What are your thoughts around that whole space? Yeah, sure. The most interesting thing about Zora is that they're, they're the first consumer application building on top of a existing primitive on Ethereum. Today, like whenever there's a, you know, pop-up consumer application built, it's kind of just built, you know, on, on that layer, on that layer next to Ethereum. But St. Fame and Zora are kind of built, you know, two layers deeper because they're built on top of Uniswap, right? Because they want to take advantage of, of bonding curves, and automated market making to do pricing, right? So this, this hasn't been done before uh, in any capacity. Obviously, when you have a consumer application, like Zora, that's you know, it's trying to reach the masses. Like you have this protocol risk 
with with Uniswap, right? So if, if something in Uniswap breaks or something, you know, if Uniswap does a major upgrade, then Zora is affected by it as well, or, or same thing, right? Even though you you can leverage some piece of infrastructure that kind of you know either uh, enhances your project experience or gives you like a differentiated value, you need to worry about uh, kind of the governance associated with primitive that's kind of being built upon. Uh, and I think that's the most interesting thing about it itself. Um, so if, if they can pull it off, it has to do with uh, Uniswap being able to provide that uh, capacity to do so. Uh, and I think if we see uh, success with the same thing as Aura, I think you'll see a lot more uh, breakout consumer applications being built on top of uh, Uniswap as well that uses some uh, form of automated market making. Uh, we, we've kind of seen that with the whole social money thing, right? People have kind of been putting their personal tokens inside of Uniswap to get to, to do the, the pricing themselves because they don't they don't know how to price themselves. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Yeah, I think that what they're doing is just such a totally like bends my mind, but also it's a complete game changer to how you know products are marketed and how they're priced and all sorts of stuff like that. But to walk through like a simple example, I make a brand where I'm selling limited edition NFTs. Let's say let's say I'm going to sell ten NFTs. So I would make, you know, St. Andrew, let's just call it, and I would go on Zora and I would sell my St. Andrew tokens and there would only be 10 tokens from what I believe because each one corresponds with my limited edition good, which is an NFT. And that token would be dynamically priced on Uniswap based off of the supply and demand of that token. Yep, that's correct. When I was reading their, their website and what they're building and what the possibilities are, like being able to essentially pre-fund the development of something and also gauge some sort of estimate on the, the demand before it's even launched. I think they talked about, I don't know, Gucci or some big brand using a, a model like that. Who, who's, oh, Supreme, Supreme. So, you know, Supreme stuff, it usually sells out right away for, let's call it a hundred bucks. And then you could buy it on a secondary market for like 500 bucks. If the brand itself could capture more of that upside and be able to capture that true price discovery and being able to acquire that $500, that's just like totally changed the game. So I love that. The Uniswap guys actually started this this trend with, with Unisocks, right? And I think when, when St. Fame saw this and saw Unisocks actually take off, uh, they were like, they were like, wow, there's actually an entire business model here that kind of makes sense that, that solves this problem uh, of trying to get these, these highly priced goods, right? Like whenever there's like, you know, a huge concert with really popular artists, people are have to kind of wait in line digitally for, you know, to, to get access to something. Whenever there's like this huge sneaker drop, people have to kind of, you know, wait in line, try to click as fast as they can to the page. Right? You know, sometimes it brings like the entire site down. Right? This actually provides a whole new way to, to get access to some of these like uh, these uh, these scarce goods because that there's you can kind of gauge the demand kind of ahead of time and price them accurately. Um, instead of them selling them at a, at a fixed price, uh, that causes this, uh, you know, huge uh, backlog, and and you can, uh, to to some degree, right? Like whenever, you, you, like it, with, with Jordans, like you know, when, when there's a really high high in demand too, uh, you know, it, it can cause the supply to be out of stock for months. Um, but this is actually a much more reasonable way of pricing them, even though that you know prices sometimes of the of these of these uh, blockchain based scarce goods, you know. Like same fame got to 750 US dollars at one point and started at $20, right? So like even though the prices can be a lot higher, like because you have that kind of like built-in liquidity to some extent, you can always have have this option to cash out instead of just kind of buying this, buying this good at the first time and trying to find a way to sell it on, on a third-party marketplace. 
Um, so there are a lot of interesting different models that you can, you can play around with on this. Yeah, I think that that is totally insane. So you're able to buy this, you know, let's say you bought the St. Fame token uh, for $20 and, you know, they're in production and they say, okay, well, it's going to be out for delivery in, in two months. So you basically have two months essentially to decide whether or not to sell your token to another user. So if it goes up to $750, like that's a pretty big incentive to sell that token and hopefully try to get it back when it when it's at a lower price or something like that. I also think it's really interesting that maybe they launch the design of the t-shirt and I don't know, people don't like the design. So then price goes down. And I think I'm not positive, but I think you can short these tokens. Do you know if you can short? I don't think you can short directly on on Uniswap or on St. Fame, but I'm sure you can create another protocol or another application that kind of gauges the prediction of them, right? You can always, you can always have a prediction market that, that, that gauges the price of the good as well, right? And you, you can buy kind of the, the sell side of it in order to, uh, order to short, right? There, there are different ways you can go about it. That makes a lot of sense. And speaking of prediction markets, I want to ask you, what are your opinion on prediction markets? Because I, I feel like back when, uh, I don't know, 2017 and even 2018, Augur was super, super hot, you know, all the rage and everyone was talking about it. And now I feel like it's not talked about too much. And I feel like the potential for prediction markets, that was like a huge use case that everyone was talking about. And now it's, it's kind of died down. Yeah, there are two big things that hold back prediction markets. First is a stable coin. So in order to have, you know, long-term markets like uh, presidential elections or kind of like predicting events uh, like in the future, you need to have a, a stable store, a, a stable value associated that's been locked into the market, right? You don't want to lock in ETH and all of a sudden the price of ETH crashes and kind of, you can't really do anything with it, right? You're going to lose everything. Um, I think that's the first thing. The second thing is a very scalable, you need a more scalable platform. So like, if you want to have, if you want to make trades very quickly, like on a prediction market, because things are happening very fast, like, like with externally, like whether it's like sports betting or uh, something else, right? Uh, you need to be able to execute those trades like as as they're happening, right? Um, so if like you know, if, if like once the event actually happens and you're you're trying to you know go to the other position that actually happened like as fast as possible, it, it causes this like price crash essentially with prediction markets because because everyone's trying trying to get in the same position at the same time. So you you just need a much more scalable way to do prediction markets, and I think. Um, uh, Flux Flux Market was originally built on top of Logger, and now they've actually moved to Near Protocol uh, because they've uh, recognized this problem uh, of uh, trying to need a much more scalable platform to do it. It'll be interesting to see uh, Logger V2 is right around the corner. They they have the stablecoin integration, so we'll see if the uh, scalability problem holds them back. Uh, they'll probably be much more focused on creating these these, these long term markets with kind of the presidential election uh, that uh, Gesser uh, has kind of been focused on in, in recent months. All right, let's talk about the metaverse. So which company do you think is closest to building a metaverse-like application? I think it's between two, two that I've already mentioned. I think the first one is uh, Epic Games of Fortnite. Obviously, we've already seen the... Uh, uh, marshmallow and, and Star Wars concerts, that sort of thing. Being able to bring any IP inside of the game is is insanely powerful. And they've already built out that backend architecture to kind of just plug and play different IPs at this point and have these massive events of kind of that scale. Combine that with their UGC environment that they have as well, enabling anyone to create private lobbies and, and kind of build it up from, from the ground uh, is insanely powerful. The issue is like, like 
do they actually control like some of that platform? Like absolutely. I think the interesting part will be when you're able to have an asset in Fortnite and bring it to a different game, uh, facilitated by the Epic Games uh, Store, right? So Epic Games Store will eventually, or my prediction is at least it, it can be a wallet, right? So that you have this kind of this inventory that sits on top of all these games that when you log into any of the games top of the Epic Games Store, you can kind of see, you know, what you got in Fortnite or what you got in Battlefront or some of these other things, right? And they'll give you different benefits depending on what you've achieved in other games, right? And then it incentivizes uh, Epic Games to go out and, and get more more games uh, onto their platform so they have the this like shared uh, benefit of of this uh, inventory across games. So just to be clear, you think that this will happen without using blockchain? This will be like their own internal system? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't, you don't need a blockchain for that. So, Epic Games and Facebook; those are the two companies that are the closest to building a metaverse-like application. Yeah. So, the way the way Facebook does it is through is through an Oculus phrase. I I think they announced uh, their version of their metaverse, Full Horizons. Yeah. So it's like yeah, that's kind of their take on the metaverse, right? So like you you have this you know very UGC style style game where you can go go in and kind of be whoever you want to be. Kind of was their advertisement. But it's kind of a closed environment. You can't really do anything uh, outside of the game that, that, that kind of brings the value. Obviously, if there's like a huge amount of like activity going on in the game, you can probably start to see like people like having businesses businesses in it the same way that you have businesses inside of like you know Instagram or or, or Facebook, right? You can you can essentially uh, just create links uh, inside of the game that links out to other things. So you can essentially you know set up your own store in Horizons. That enables enables you to buy something, you know, for yourself, right? Uh, it's kind of happening right now with um, with like Animal Crossing, right? There's like there's like stories of like people playing the new Animal Crossing and setting up stores with QR codes that, that allows you to, to buy different things, right? Uh, and kind of like creating businesses on top of the game as well. So uh, I think that that's a totally possible reality. It's just a matter of how much. Facebook wants to control that as like an actual distribution platform. So do you think that there'll be a future where the Epic Game Store with that wallet that you were talking about, will they allow the users to connect their wallet to other platforms, like other metaverses, like a one controlled by Facebook, like Facebook Horizons? Or will that be strictly for Epic Games owned and operated stuff? Yeah, I mean, they don't really have an incentive, right? Like, like the same way that Apple has kind of a closed off ecosystem and try to get everyone to have a lock in Apple products. Like they're gonna to want to have a lock into like the, the Epic Games uh, uh, ecosystem as well, right? Like their incentive is to is to get as many games as possible onto the Epic Games Store, uh, as opposed as opposed to you know using Steam or, or something along those lines. So yeah, I, I don't I don't really I don't really see a benefit of having a company kind of sharing that uh, across the, uh, more players. So do you think that NFTs play any role within the metaverse? On a on a long enough time scale, yes. Arguably, there's some companies building, trying to build the metaverse right now, like on Ethereum. You know, you have like Sandbox, Decentraland, um, some of these others, right? And, and like you can say that like, those are metaverses already. But if we're talking about a metaverse at scale with with millions of users, uh, with NFTs on top of it, you know, that probably won't happen for I'd say over a decade at least. And the reason is that is because you probably have a uh, you probably have a metaverse that's you know centrally controlled by Epic Games or Facebook at first, but then there'll be issues of scarcity. They'll, they'll probably be print, printing as many digital goods as they can in game because 
they're allowed to because they, they kind of control the supply. Right? You won't be able to track. You won't be able to bring it outside the game. People will start getting mad. People will start protesting about how much goods are being printed that will cause all this inflation in, in the game right? With, 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 their digitally, with their digital goods that are not on the blockchain. And eventually people will create a more open one that's, you know, very equivalent, but looks kind of the same, but, you know, more on the blockchain with a more scalable platform. It's kind of just this, this shift that's already been happening with, you know, decentralized social networks that are kind of emerging today that are very flat in 2D, but in order to have a, a 3D world, we need to have the uh, 3D centralized version of the metaverse first before we see a 3D a decentralized version of a metaverse. I definitely agree that I think that Facebook and Epic Games will be, they'll create their metaverses that will be functioning way before a blockchain-based metaverse arises. But I also think that in order to have a true metaverse, you need to have strong property rights and be able to earn money and not have to worry about your assets getting seized by the developer. And if you are working in the Facebook Horizons metaverse and you, you know, you work hard and you sell your, I don't know, digital hats or whatever, and you earn a living from that, that's great. But at any time, they can just kind of seize your hats, seize all your assets and seize all your money and shut you down. It's like, that's terrifying. So that to me is like not a true metaverse. It's like a, it's like a metaverse light. But this happens today already, right? That's kind of my point, right? So like on, on, on Instagram and, and Facebook and YouTube, like people already have all these businesses, you know, where they sell all their items, right? Right. At some point, like you know, they can get shut down at any time by the by the central providers, right? But like their businesses are still going, and they they depend on like on these platforms to, to keep going, right? So I think that's my, my my major point about like we'll the way we see decentralized social networks emerge will we'll kind of be how the road kind of paves its way itself for the three D blockchain metaverse. That's really interesting. So I'm selling my hats on Instagram. And Instagram has the power to totally shut me down. That'll destroy my sales. But if you think about it, if you're like selling your digital hats and they're all made in this digital world of Facebook Horizons and they decide to shut you down, like not only can you not sell anymore, but they like just seized all your property. It's like double as bad, you know? Why couldn't you be able to sell real hats inside of Facebook Horizons? I guess I'm going from the standpoint of like the metaverse is where you're doing everything digitally. So it's like you're whatever goods or services that you're doing is all digital. So if I'm selling my hats in the metaverse, they're like digital hats versus Instagram, it'd be like physical. I think that's that's my point though, is that you'll you'll have this this strange crossover. Because like, right now, I'm like theoretically, uh, you know, like you can sell digital hats inside of inside of Instagram if you wanted to, like like for, for other things. But because everything true, true. Is, is like, you know, close source to some degree, it's like, it's like, okay, if we're actually living our lives instead of a instead of a digital metaverse then then sure that we'll will absolutely depend on you know nfts and other things to have this degree of safety to some regards right that we kind of separate ourselves from you know the the the, the digital world that, that we live in but like, like our, our, because our physical world seems much safer to some degree than our, in our digital lives because we can kind of like just you know get out of it at any time have the head of the form of escape so it, it's all relative uh, at that point but yeah i can kind of see a future where Epic Games metaverse and the Facebook Horizons metaverse has millions and millions and so many users and and hopefully you know they'll allow some form of monetization where people can actually earn some money from their creations and like games that they make within these worlds. I hope that over time they kind of become I don't know enlightened so to speak where where they see hey there's an option uh, over in this virtual world where I can own all my assets and I can own my currency and oh I can't get shut down for any sort of reason and I think that. There'll be some events where, I don't know, there'll be Facebook and Horizons and 
Epic Games Metaverse companies with, within those platforms that will get shut down for X or Y reason. I don't know, maybe, maybe they tweet something wrong or maybe they do something and, uh, and that'll lead to like, that'll cause a big exodus of users because they'll say, wow, I didn't realize that you can, your livelihood can just get taken away like that. You know, these people make a living selling digital hats. Like now I want to move to, you know, this Ethereum-based platform and yeah, it's way slower and way less users, but at least like I'm confident in, in the idea that I'll never have my stuff seized from me. Do you think that can happen, you know, within the next decade? Because you put that decade timeframe up there. I think it's going to happen. Like once these things are active, I think that that'll happen within the first couple of years. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the, the the decade timeline is when you'll see a uh, a metaverse with millions of users. They actually own a blockchain itself. There are still a lot of uh, technical problems that that need to be solved before that actually happens. But yeah, I think in terms of actually having a, a uh, essentially controlled metaverse where there's these problems of uh, intrusion by these central providers, I think that's totally reasonable to have it uh, much earlier than that. Okay, yeah, no, having an entire metaverse on blockchain, like completely decentralized, that 100%, that'll take at least 10 years. You're absolutely correct on that on that point. My thought process is more of a centralized world with a decentralized assets, decentralized assets and like money ownership, you know, so like the money in that world is an ERC-20 and then the assets are nifties. All right, if you could, you know, money and technology was no limits, if you could build your dream application that uses you know uh, blockchain technology so dream dap let's call it what would you do and what would you build i would build a school on the blockchain oh interesting tell me more about that <laughs> so the, the the fundamental problem with the education system right now is that we all kind of have to learn the same things but collectively collectively we can probably learn figure out the best way to learn something by everyone trying to do it and if we analyzed everyone's path to learning something uh, on chain and we can actually see their history of almost learning uh, the entire way we can de design the most kind of the perfect curriculum f for anyone to kind of learn something right the, the way education is kind of designed today is, is about certification and, and and getting these certificates that kind of signals that we've we've done something but doesn't really it doesn't really measure that you you've learned something to, to some degree right so Eventually, if we have all our activity that we do on chain, whether it's like, you know, actually doing things on the job or, or participating in certain DAOs, uh, then we can actually measure that, like, how efficient we are at something. And that way we can we can kind of say, OK, well, if, if you want to become, you know, a coder or, or a designer and, and whenever you contribute something to, to work or to something, right, that is, that's an on-chain activity, right? You can kind of see the previous history of like, OK, what have they learned? And like, how, how do how do we how do we put that into into the curriculum itself, right? I think a good example of this is like Code Academy, right? Like, if, if Code Academy was on chain, then we can see how someone went from you know zero to becoming a coder, right? We can see like what tracks they've done. We can see you know uh, what what uh, what programming languages they, they chose to do first, right? And and then we can finally get to okay, well, it's like how can we you know, use that same technique to, to apply it to someone else to learn the same thing. That's so cool. So because it's a, you know, open, transparent ledger, I could like look up Brian Flynn and I could see this is when he started learning, I don't know, JavaScript and look how far he's come and wow, he's made like these GitHub commits and, and all sorts of stuff. And I could track your progress throughout. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the biggest thing in order for that to be solved is decentralized identity, which hasn't been solved. Uh, but, but, you know, hopefully if and when that is solved and this can, it would be, uh, more uh, possible. That is awesome. All right, let's jump into the closing questions. 
What is your single favorite NFT that you own? Uh, I think I think it has to be um, Ethmoji. So Ethmoji is my favorite NFT project, and I designed one that looked uh, kind of like me, very pale and black hair and red eyes, and uh, yeah. And so it's uh, I use it for my avatar on, on Discord. I own the the black hair uh, Ethmoji component, so I can tell people to use that component. It's either only Ethmoji creations, and I get a royalty for it. So I always imagined like. You know some avatar system where you know I have like a you know a really cool lightsaber that I that I produced, and now as more people you know use that own lightsaber in their avatars, I'll get a royalty, you know every single time someone mints that mints that lightsaber. So like I, I think that Ethmoji uh, system of, of minting NFTs is, is is super innovative, and I think should be explored by more projects. That's super interesting. It's like. It's almost like adding a monetization layer into avatars in a sense. Yeah, exactly. All right. What is something you'd like to see happen or something that you think needs to happen to the NFT ecosystem? I think we need to have a uh, avatar standard for sure. Like I think at, at, at this at this point, we're, we're starting to have a multiple avatars across multiple games, like with, with between CryptoVoxels, Decentralands, and these others. You know, we have like wearables for these games, but why why don't we have just you know a single avatar that's able to be transported across these games in some in some aspects? It's unclear of how it works, just in a lot of different aspects. Um, but I, I've always wanted to see some type of avatar system emerge that's more of a standard. So would that be like a token standard? So like the exactly. architecture? Of, okay, so so the architecture is the same, but visually they can look totally different exactly. depending on what world you're in. Yeah. So you would have, you know, say three or four different components, your avatar, um, and depending on like what you're wearing in your avatar is how you would be displayed in the game. So if you you could have you know, four NFTs that, that kind of follow you uh, to each game, but in, in that game, those NFTs will be displayed differently. That's really cool. But what are the incentives for these NFT projects to come together and work on a standard? Because I feel like if they're all earning money from selling and creating their own avatars, then I feel like there's a disincentive to, to make a, a standard. That is the good old NFT question, right? Like, if you have more NFTs, why not sell them and make more money? <laughs> That's very true. It's an even larger problem. I mean, it, it, I don't think I don't think it'd be solved in, in any capacity. I think it'll always be there. It's just something that I always wanted. I feel like if if someone built a, a solid standard that was that worked in you know every game that that's currently out there, all the NFT projects, I feel like there could be some sort of uh, movement to to move towards that. But it's also a big gamble whether or not people will readily adopt that. All right, so what do you think are the key factors for success for an NFT project? Doom from the beginning. I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, I think first you need to find a unique distribution method. I think alone, like pre-selling assets at first isn't enough. I think uh, CryptoKitties was, you know, they're the first ones. They're pretty innovative in the way that minted NFTs by having that, you know, the, the breeding mechanic of being on chain. So if you find a way to distribute NFTs kind of in most decentralized way possible, I think it's really interesting. Like, like, uh, like Saint Fame is arguably uh, an NFT project because once you redeem a, a, a Saint Fame switcher, you get a Saint Fame NFT, right? And that Saint Fame NFT can be used as a wearable inside of crypto boxes, right? So that's a way to, to kind of, you know, have this this defined scarcity that exists because for every digital NFT in Saint Fame, there's a physical NFT, a, a physical a digital a physical good that exists somewhere in the world, right? Um, so you need to have this predefined set of 
of scarcity that that actually exists and is actually real instead of kind of faking uh, scarcity in some way. Otherwise, you know, the users will, will, will kind of be scared off and start to lose trust. So it's almost like NFTs need to step their game up in the sense that we're almost not that much different than like Fortnite selling their skins because Fortnite totally. can issue unlimited and we're essentially copying that. And we need to like, yeah, we need to add more. We need to add more gusto. We need to do something else that makes it a little more spicy. It's even worse with NFT projects because you can sell the NFTs without an actual game. That's very it. true. But th then you can look at some stuff like, actually, I don't know if there's any, I don't know, Star Citizen comes to mind, which is that game that has raised, you know, obscene amounts of money, which I guess isn't live yet, so to speak, but it's live in beta. I guess you're right. They're like, it is playable. And then there are NFT projects that will sell their NFTs before the game's even live. So yeah, it, it's, a, it's a tough spot. Yeah. All right, last question. Tell me what is on your mind right now? What are you thinking in terms of crypto and the entire ecosystem? Yeah, so what's been on my mind a lot is kind of what the definition of a blockchain game actually is, and if we're kind of like thinking about it all wrong. Sort of, I've been thinking like, like what are the actual benefits of blockchain and how it like provide to games? One way I think about this is like, okay, well, what if, what if blockchain, what if a blockchain game kind of existed across multiple interfaces as opposed to just kind of this one interface, right? The way games we think of what we know is, you know, we have like this, a simple front end that, you know, affects a smart contract code or have the assets kind of lay inside of them. Um, but it's kind of hard for, for, you know, a player to kind of venture out, right? But if we think about like the NFT ecosystem as a whole, right, we're in CryptoVoxels, we're in OpenSea, like, you can kind of think about that as like an entire game, right? Like that, that gameplay exists outside of the initial interface there in itself, right? What was interesting about the Cheese Wizards project is that um, it was one of the first uh, types of NFT games, blockchain games, that, that people could actually create composable code that had some impact on the gameplay itself, right? So like, how can we create a, a blockchain game that, that may not necessarily use NFTs in some capacity, um, but be, be kind of this, you know, game experience that, that interacts with, you know, multiple applications where the uh, user actually creates the gameplay instead of the initial developer itself, right? And then as you travel into these different games, that your progression is saved from other games and they can read from other games. So I'm exploring kind of what that looks like right now. That's so cool. It's it's almost like a game on Ethereum versus a game specific to you know it uses utilizes this part of Ethereum. It's almost like a uh, a global a global thing so to speak, a global network so to speak. Yeah. So like what, one of the projects I worked on at Dapper was was called uh, Chipscore, and it kind of it kind of uh, touches on this a lot. And it, it, it's about like what if we were to create this game layer on top of other applications where you can essentially receive experience points and level up based upon your actions in different blockchain games and different DeFi apps. So it goes off that concept. Oh, that's really cool. Well, I hope you uh, explore more of that in, in the future. All right, Ryan, this has been absolutely awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. And I love hearing about your thoughts. We could talk about this for absolutely just for hours and hours. But if people want to find out more about yourself and contact you or sign up for your newsletter, where should they go and what should they do? Yeah, you, you can find me on Twitter uh, at FlynnJam. Uh, my newsletter is there. Awesome, Brian. Well, thank you so much for joining me and you'll have to come back on again soon and we'll, we'll have more, uh, more chats. Yeah, thanks for having me, Andrew. Bye. Hey, everyone. Stay tuned for more episodes of the Zima Red podcast 
and subscribe to the Zima Red newsletter for more info on all things NFTs. Thanks so much for listening.